Hi, well, if you've been reading recently across social media, there's a lot of talk about seaweed, carbon storage, kelp, and so on and so forth. They'll talk about the merits as they found ways to substitute plastics for many aspects of our daily lives with seaweed and kelp and so on and so forth. Um, they've found ways of using seaweed as food. That's nothing new, but it's coming back into it as we talk about the agricultural issues, the limitations of food towards a growing population. And <clears throat> the many other matters and benefits of seaweed and kelp and so on. Carbon storage being one, as the oceans saturate and so forth, because it's actually fast to grow. Well, an article joins this conversation in this narrative, and it was issued by the MIT Technology Review com technologyreview.com, which is a MIT magazine. And here we have it. And it falls within climate change, carbon sequestration. Companies hoping to grow carbon-sucking kelp may be rushing ahead of the science. Sinking seaweed could sequester a lot of carbon, but researchers are still grappling with basic questions about reliability, scalability, and risks. This was issued yesterday. By and authored by James Temple. In late January, Elon Musk tweeted that he planned to give $100 million to promising carbon removal technologies, stirring the hopes of researchers and entrepreneurs. A few weeks later, Aaron Crumley, a filmmaker who went on to develop electric skateboards, announced that a team was forming on Clubhouse, the audio app popular in Silicon Valley, to compete for a share of the Musk-funded X Prize, A group of artists, designers, and engineers assembled there and discussed a variety of possible natural and technical means of sucking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. As the conversations continued and a core team coalesced, coalesced they formed a company, Pull to Refresh, that's the name of the company, and eventually settled on growing giant bladder kelp in the ocean. So far, the venture's main efforts include growing the seaweed in a tank and testing their control systems on a small fishing boat on a northern California lake. But it's already encouraging companies to get in touch if they're interested in purchasing tons of sequestered CO2 as a way to balance out their greenhouse gas emissions. Crumley says that huge fleets of semi-autonomous vessels growing kelp could suck up around a trillion tons of carbon dioxide and store it away in the depths of the sea, effectively reversing climate change with a small amount of open ocean, he says. We can get back to pre-industrial levels of atmospheric carbon dioxide. Numerous studies show the world may need to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide a year from the atmosphere by mid-century to prevent dangerous levels of warming or bring the planet back from them. In addition, more and more corporations are scouring the plant market for carbon credits that allow them to offset their emissions and claim progress towards the goal, the goal of carbon neutrality. All of that has spurred a growing number of companies, investors, and research groups to explore carbon removal approaches that range from planting trees to grinding up minerals to building giant CO2-sucking factories. Kelp has become an especially active area of inquiry and investment, 
because there's already an industry that cultivates it on a large scale. And the theoretical carbon removal potential is significant. An expert panel assembled by the Energy Futures Initiative estimated that kelp has the capacity to pull down about 1 billion to 10 billion tons of carbon dioxide per year. But scientists are still grappling with fundamental questions about this approach. How much kelp can we grow? What will it take to ensure that most of the seaweed sinks to the bottom of the ocean? And how much of the carbon will stay there long enough to really help the climate? In addition, no one knows what the ecological impact of depositing billions of tons of dead biomass on seafloor would be. We just have zero experience with perturbing to the bottom of the ocean with that amount of carbon, says Stephen Davis, an associate professor at the University of California, Irvine, who is analyzing the economics of various uses of kelp. I don't think anybody has a great idea what it will mean to actively intervene in the system at that scale. The scientific unknowns, however, haven't prevented some ventures from rushing ahead, making bold promises, and aiming to sell carbon credits. If the practice doesn't sequester as much carbon as claimed, it could slow or overstate progress on climate change, as the companies buying those credits carry on emitting on the false promise that the oceans are balancing out that pollution ton for ton. For the field as a whole, I think that having this research done by universities in partnership with government scientists and national labs would go a long way toward establishing a basic level of trust before we commercializing some of this stuff, says Holly Buck, an assistant professor at the University of at Buffalo, who is studying the social implications of ocean-based carbon removal. Swaying columns of giant kelp line, the rocky shores of California's Monterey Bay, providing habitat and hunting grounds for rockfish, sea otters, and urchins. The brown macroalgae draws on sunlight, carbon dioxide, and nutrients in the cool coastal waters to grow up to two feet a day. The forests continually shed their blades and fronds, and the seaweed can be knocked loose entirely by waves and storms. In the late 1980s, researchers at the Monterey Bay Aquarium became a series of experiments to determine whether, where all that seaweed ends up. They attached radio transmitters to large floating rafts of kelp and scanned the ocean depths with remote-operated submarines. The scientists estimated that the forest released more than 130,000 tons of kelp each year. Most of the rafts of kelp washed up on shore within the bay in a matter of days. But in the underwater observations, they found bundles of seaweed lining the wall and floor on an adjacent underwater gully known as the Carmel Submarine Canyon, hundreds of meters below the surface. Scientists have spotted similar remnants of kelp on the deep ocean floors in coastal pockets throughout the world. And it's clear that some of that carbon in the biomass stays down for millennia because kelp is, known, is a known source of oil deposits. A 2016 paper published in Nature Geoscience estimated that seaweed may naturally sequester nearly 175 million tons of carbon around the world each year as it sinks into the deep sea or drifts into submarine canyons. That translates to well below the levels of carbon dioxide that the world will likely need to remove annually by mid-century, let alone 
the amounts envisioned by Crumley and his team. Which is why Paul to Refresh and other companies are exploring ways to radically scale up the growth of kelp on offshore vessels or elsewhere. But how much of the carbon will remain trapped below the surface and for how long? Certain species of seaweed, like giant bladder kelp, have tiny gas bladders on their blades, enabling the macroalgae to collect more of the sunlight necessary to drive photosynthesis. The bladders can also keep the remnants or rafts afloat for days or longer depending on the species, helping currents carry dislodged kelp to distant shores. When the carbon in kelp decomposes on land or turns into dissolved inorganic carbon dioxide in shallow seawater, it can return to the atmosphere, says David Kowik, science director at Ocean Visions, a research organization that partners with institutions like MIT, Stanford, and the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute. The carbon may also be released if marine creatures digest the kelp in the upper oceans. But some kelp sinks into the deep ocean as well. Bladders degrade, storms push the seaweed down so deep that they deflate. Certain species are naturally non-buoyant, and some amount that breaks free below the surface stays there and may drift down into deeper waters through underwater canyons like the one off the coast of Monterey. Ocean circulation models suggest much of the carbon in biomass that reaches great depths of the oceans could remain there for very long times because the overturning patterns that bring deep waters toward the surface operate so slowly, below 2,100 meters, for instance, the median secretion time would exceed 750 years across major parts of the North Pacific, according to a recent paper in Environmental Research Letters. All of which suggests that deliberately sinking seaweed could store away carbon long enough to ease some of the pressures of climate change. But it will matter a lot where it's done and what efforts are taken to ensure that most of the biomatter reaches the deep ocean. Paul to Refresh's plan is to develop semi-autonomous vessels equipped with floats, solar panels, cameras, and satellite antennas, enabling the crafts to adjust their steering and speed to arrive at designated points in the open ocean. Each of these so-called canaries will also tow a sort of underwater trellis made of steel wire, known as the tadpole, tethering together bases in which giant bladder kelp can grow. The vessel will feed the seaweed through tubes from an onboard tank of micronutrients. Eventually, Crumley says the kelp will die, fall off, and naturally make its way down to the bottom of the ocean. By putting the vessels far from the coast, the company believes it can address the risk that the dead seaweed will wash up on shore. Pull to refresh has already begun discussions with companies about purchasing kelp tons from the seaweed it, is, it will eventually grow. We need a business model that works now-ish or as soon as possible, Crumley says. The ones we're talking to are forgiving. They understand that it's in its infancy, so we'll be upfront about anything we don't know about. But we'll keep deploying these canaries until we've got enough tons to close out your order. Crumley said in an email that the company will have two years to get the carbon accounting for its process approved by a third-party accreditor as part of any transition. He said the company is conducting internal environmental impact efforts, talking at least to one carbon removal registry, and that it hopes to receive input from outside researchers working on these issues. Whenever 
going to sell a ton that isn't third-party verified simply because we don't want to be a part of anything that could even just sound shady, he wrote. Other ventures are taking added steps to ensure that the kelp sinks and to coordinate with scientific experts in the field. Running Tide, an aquaculture company based in Portland, Maine, is carrying out field tests in the North Atlantic to determine where and how various types of kelp grow best under a variety of conditions. The company is primarily focused on non-buoyant species of macroalgae and has also been developing biodegradable floats. The company isn't testing sinking yet, but the basic concept is that the floats will break down as the seaweed grows in the ocean. After about six to nine months, the whole thing should readily sink to the bottom of the ocean and stay there. Marty Odlin, chief executive at Running Tide, stresses that the company is working with scientists to ensure they're evaluating the carbon removal potential of kelp in rigorous and appropriate ways. Ocean Visions helped establish a scientific advisory team to guide the company's field trials made up of researchers from the Monterey Bay Aquarium Research Institute, UC Santa Barbara, and other institutions. The company is also coordinating with the Center for Climate Repair at Cambridge on efforts to more precisely determine how much carbon the oceans can take up through these sort of approaches. Running Tide plans to carry... <laughs> running Tide is the name of the company. Plans to carry out tests for at least two and a half years to develop a robust data set on the effects of these practices. At that point, the conclusion might be we need more data or this doesn't work or it's ready to go, Odlin says. The company has high hopes for what it might achieve, stating on its website, growing kelp and sinking it into the ocean is a carbon sequestration solution that can stale beyond any other. Running Tide has raised millions of dollars from Venrock, Lower Carbon Capital, and other investors. The tech companies Shopify and Stripe have both provided funds as well, purchasing future carbon dioxide removal at high prices to help fund research and development efforts. Several other companies and nonprofits are also exploring ways to sequester carbon dioxide from seaweed. That includes the Climate Foundation, which is selling $125 blockchain-secured kelp coin to, secure, to support its broader research efforts to increase kelp production for food and other purposes. Some carbon removal experts fear that market forces could propel carbon, sorry, kelp sinking efforts forward. Whatever the research finds about its effectiveness or risks, the companies or nonprofits doing it will have financial incentives to sell credits. Investors will want to earn their money back. Corporate demand for sources of carbon credits is skyrocketing. And offset registries, which earn money by providing a stamp of approval for carbon credit programs, have a clear stake in adding a new category to the carbon marketplace. One voluntary offset registry, Vera, is already developing a protocol for carbon removal through seagrass cultivation and is actively watching the kelp space according to Yale Environment 360. We've already seen these pressures play out with other approaches to offset credits, says Danny Cullenward, policy director at Carbon Plan, a nonprofit that assesses the scientific integrity of carbon removal efforts. Carbonpren and other research groups have highlighted excessive crediting and other problems with 
programs designed to incentivize, measure, and verify emissions avoided or carbon removal achieved through forest and soil management practices. Yet the carbon credit markets continue to grow as nations and corporations look for ways to offset their ongoing emissions on paper, if not in the atmosphere. Sinking seaweed to the bottom of the ocean creates especially tricky challenges in verifying that the carbon removal is really happening. After all, it's far easier to measure trees than it will be to track the flow of carbon dissolved in the deep ocean. That means any carbon accounting system for kelp will rely heavily on models that determine how much carbon should stay under the surface for how long in certain parts of the ocean. Under certain circumstances, getting the assumptions right will be critical to the integrity of any eventual offset program and any corporate carbon math that relies on them. Some researchers also worry about the ecological impact of seaweed sinking. Will Burns, a visiting professor focused on carbon removal at Northwestern University and a member of Running Tide's advisory board, notes that growing enough to kelp, growing enough kelp to achieve a billion tons of carbon removal could require millions of boys in the oceans. Those floating forests could block the migration paths of marine mammals. Creatures could also hitch abroad the boys or the vessels delivering them potentially introducing invasive species into different areas. And the kelp forests themselves could create gigantic new sushi bars, Burns says, perhaps tipping food chains in ways that are hard to predict. The addition of that much biomatter and carbon into the deep ocean could alter the biochemistry of the waters too, and that could have cascading effects on marine life. If you're talking about an approach that could massively alter ocean ecosystems, do you want that in the hands of the private sector, Burns says. Running Tide's Odlin stresses that he has no interest in working on carbon removal methods that don't work or that harm the oceans. He says the reason he started looking into kelp sinking was that he witnessed firsthand how climate change was affecting marine ecosystems and fish populations. I'm trying to fix that problem, he says. If this activity doesn't fix that problem, I'll go work on something else. That will. Scaling up kelp-based program, sorry, scaling up kelp-based carbon removal from the hundreds of millions of tons estimated to occur naturally to the billions of tons needed will also face some obvious logistical challenges, says John Birdle, an emeritus professor at Monash University in Australia, who has studied the potential and challenges of seaweed cultivation. For one, only certain parts of the world offer suitable habitat for most kelp. Seaweed largely grows in relatively shallow, cool, nutrient-rich waters along rocky coastlines. Expanding kelp cultivation near shore will be constrained by existing uses like shipping, fishing, marine protected areas, and indigenous territories. Ocean Visions notes in a state of technology assessment, moving it offshore with rafts or buoys will create engineering challenges and add costs. Moreover, Companies may have to overcome legal complications if their primary purpose will be sinking kelp on large commercial scales. There are complex and evolving sets of rules under treaties like the London Convention and the London Protocol that prevent dumping in the open oceans and regulate marine geoengineering activities designed to counteract climate change. Commercial efforts to move ahead with sinking seaweed in certain areas could be subject to permitting requirements under a resolution of the London Convention or run afoul of at least the spirit of the rule if they move ahead 
with our environmental assistant assessment, Byrne says. Climate change itself is already devastating kelp forests in certain parts of the world as well, Beardall noted, noted in an email. Warming waters, coupled with the population explosion of sea urchins that feed on seaweed, have decimated the kelp forest along California's coastline. The giant kelp forests along Tasmania have also shrunk by about 95% in recent years. This is not to say that we shouldn't look to seaweed harvest and aquaculture as one approach to CO2 secretion, Birdle wrote, but I simply want to make the point that it is not going to be a major route. Another question is simply whether sinking seaweed is the best use of it. It's a critical food and income uh, source for farmers across significant parts of Asia, and one that's already undergrowing strains as climate change accelerates. It's used in pharmaceuticals, food additives, and animal feed, and it could be employed in other applications that tie up the carbon, like bioplastics or biochar that enriches soils. Sustainably farmed seaweed is a valuable product with a wide or a very wide range of uses and a low environmental footprint, said Dort Kraus Jensen, a professor at Aarhus University in Denmark, who has studied kelp carbon secretation. In an email, is how she responded. In my opinion, it would be a terrible waste to dump the biomass into the deep sea. UC Irvins Davis has been conducting a comparative economic analysis of various ways of putting kelp to use, including sinking it, converting it to potentially carbon-neutral biofuels, or using it as animal feed. The preliminary results show that even if every cost was as the lowest end of the ranges, seaweed sinking could run around $200 a ton, which is more than double the long-term low-end cost estimates for carbon-sucking factories. Davis says, those costs would likely drive kelp cultivators towards uses with higher economic value. I'm more and more convinced that the biggest climate benefits of farm kelp won't involve sinking it, he says. Poultry Fresh Crumley says he and his team hope to begin testing a vessel in the ocean this year. If it works well, they plan to attach baby kelp to the tadpole and send it on its voyage, he says. He disputed the argument that companies should hold off on selling tons now on the promise of eventual carbon removal. He says that businesses need the resources to develop and scale up these technologies and that government grants won't get the field where it needs to be. We've just decided to get it done, he says. If in the end we're wrong, we'll take responsibility for any mistakes, but we think this is the right move. It is not clear, however, how such a startup could take responsibility for mistakes if the activities harm marine ecosystems. And at least for now, there are no clear mechanisms that would hold companies accountable for overestimating carbon removal through kelp. At this stage, it's crucial to carry out controlled field tests to provide more information about the scale, durability, and environmental risks of kelp sinking. Ocean Visions, Coweek says, Filling in these knowledge gaps will be essential to setting up reliable carbon accounting methods for any voluntary or government-regulated offset programs that eventually allow companies to buy and trade kelp carbon credits. He does believe that companies can play a helpful role in that, working with scientists and engineers across academia and nonprofits to more quickly deliver the information needed to produce reliable standards and determine best practices. 
but without addressing any specific company, he also says the science is too premature to stop marketing carbon credits from kelp. The entire field broadly, the entrepreneurs, startup, investors, philanthropies, scientists and engineers, we would all benefit by putting time and resources into building out the evidence base together before we jump the gun and start selling carbon credits, he says. And the author of this, the author of this article is James Temple. I, okay, so it's a little longer than usual, but it's extremely interesting as we look at the dynamics of the exercise. So naturally, you know, the, they are being accused by, uh, well, accused, or it's been raised the fact that a lot of these points, whether they actually will sequester as much carbon as the models would predict, whether the exercise of depositing will not have other consequences, who's going to hold any liability or responsibility. It, you know, you could be debating and discussing and they could be more damaging effects. But there is a spirit of entrepreneurship here that is absolutely incredible. That's for sure. Um, looking at finding solutions, absolutely. And uh, I guess over time, there will be a balance that will be found uh, as to how much corresponds to the reality of what seaweed and kelp actually do for the planet. Uh, we can list of the food, the effects on CO2 and so forth, but to measure the scale would be tricky. Um, one important point of this article is the talk the, by the Asian markets having uh, less, I don't know if it's less quality or less amount or both maybe, of seaweed to their food market. And uh, that should be something quite relevant, which means that other exercises of cultivating seaweed would allow for those markets to exist. So when you price in, you know, if we're going to be building something in one place, growing something in another place, logistics to go around, how is that going to be offset? Is it going to be used carbon technologies? All this comes into play. Uh, do we need to go through running water? Uh, are we using recycled water when we clean it? When we process it for the next uh, market, uh, what kind of energy is used? Does it still make sense? All these will weigh in on the equations, and uh, a lot of them will find over time. I look forward to see how it goes. For now, I do believe, though, that for some of the markets, this is just my point of view, because you know, initially, like many people, I would have said, okay, great, we'll grow weed, grow seaweed, get the kelp going, and, you know, stop eating meat. It all sounds very simplistic. But in reality, just like with energy, um, there are many new solutions, such as in hydro, for example, uh, that would fit the the energy mix. And uh, little by little, that will be found and met. I think the same here when it comes to carbon sequestration. sequestration. Some solutions are greater than others. Some of them look good on paper and make for great models. The reality of it, well, ask me in 10 years. A lot of the results we're looking for do take time. We are also dealing with unknown parameters. We're making assumptions. Our models are based on assumptions. We know a lot, but there's a lot more that we're still not sure about. And those are other parameters that we don't count or measure. Not because we're looking to simplistically get to a result, but because we're unaware of their effects. So we try to put them in as variables, but still, we're not there. This experiment is a human experiment, and it will take time 
to see what those results are. Sometimes you can be very successful as an ex with an experiment, find out that the side effects are not very good. Uh, just a quick uh, comparison. Uh, I think it's about 100 years ago, a little more, they discovered that soldiers who smoke eat less, which from a point of view of logistics is fantastic. Because if you have to run an army, you know, if they are smoking during their breaks or whatever they do, they will eat less meat. So you've got less food to carry around and worry about. Okay, so you know, with time, we know the effects of tobacco. This is the thing. So um, then we get smart, we learn, and we improve. Sometimes the industries are bigger, so they're slower to, to make turnarounds. But overall, time is not something we can assume to just discount. So I hope you enjoyed this article. It was in technologyreview.com, and it was authored by James Temple. I'll be talking more about kelp and seaweed and carbon sequestration uh, from the point of view of solutions married to the oceans. And uh, until the next time, thank you very much for listening.